Amberly, thank you. If you'll take your Bibles this morning and turn to the passage that Nick read for us. We're going to be, we'll find our text there this morning. Now, um, some of you are sitting there, and you are, you love this subject. But let me tell you, last week, I was talking with some of the guys after service. Last week, you could hear a pin drop in here. It was crickets. So when we deal with this subject of intimacy, it can be very uncomfortable. But you know what? It's God's idea, and it's in the text, and so we're going to continue to deal with that subject here today, uh, a little bit broader way, um, we'll address marriage uh, as well. Um, next week, we'll talk about singleness and um, God's gift of singleness. Um, we'll look at that next week, but today is the topic of marriage. And so, let's look at this, uh, this subject again. Now, chapter 7 uh, it, if you remember the overview of what, what the, the uh, ministry was all about, or the, uh, the letter was all about, do you remember the first six chapters? In chapter 1, I believe it was around verse 11, Chloe uh, said, uh, Chloe's people came and said, um, hey, look, there's some things that they wrote to you about, but there's some things that they didn't write to you about as well. Remember we dealt with the first of those three things? Or we, we dealt with the, those uh, first of the ten things. The first three of them were in the first six chapters. Well, at the beginning of chapter 7, he starts off chapter 7, and he says, now about the things with which you wrote about. And so that's where we start really <clears throat> with the next seven issues, the se- next seven things that uh, Paul is going to address that the church was struggling with. It just so happens that this first thing that he addresses here overlaps and intersects, that is, with what we went over last week in chapter 6. And so for us to understand the, understand the teaching of verses 1 through 5 specifically, we need to couple it starting, that's why I had Nick go back to chapter 6 and verse 13. I'm also going to start the message last week um, with a very familiar first point. There'll be four, four points this morning, and you're going to see a graphic here. Well, the title of the message today is God's Design is Better. All right? God's Design is Better. Um, but you're going to see a graphic here that I'm going to show you in just a moment. And the graphic is going to help us to see, um, you'll see why we're going to go back and why point number one is... Um, this word appetite, all right? So number one, we're going to look at four things, starting with number one, appetite. And you're going to see, I'll explain the graphic here in just a, a little bit, that pendulum. Do you remember the, that last week I mentioned to you that there were two general uh, views that the city of Corinth was dealing with when it came to beliefs about the human body? The two cultural views, there, the first one was the belief that the body was not as important as the what? Do you remember? The soul, right? And so, if the soul was the most important thing, 
it really doesn't matter what you do with your body. So chapter 6 and verse 13, it quotes a common jingle that was thrown around in their culture. That jingle is, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. And then you can see how some believers would then hold to the last part of the verse where, well, look, hey, and God's going to destroy both one and the other. So the point is, essentially, what they came to believe is, is that God is concerned about the soul, solely, pun intended, the body won't last forever, and so, just like food is meant for the stomach, just feed the body's appetite for gratification. And so, they would have these, I quickly mentioned it, but I'm going to need to develop it a little bit more this week for us to understand, again, verses 1 through 5 better. They had these dinner parties or these banquets that they would have. They were very prevalent in the culture at the time. Now, our culture, um, our culture is a little bit different today. We still do like to get together and stuff, but not on this scale. And, and our culture fi- finds more value and worth today in, in individualism. We're more about ourselves, our own little empires, our own little, you know, and that's been created a lot through, through media, through the phone, through, where we're ju- you know, we're just, we're so glued to this and our own little empire. But back then, they didn't have these, these devices. They didn't have things like this. And so it was a, it was a lot of, um, a lot of get-togethers, these dinner parties and these things. And so people would have these dinner banquets. And so they would have these, they would plan these big dinner banquets, you know, and um, they would have these big uh, events. Some of you that like uh, British television, just think Downton, if I said it right, or downtown, or whatever you want to say, Downton Abbey, and, uh, or Poldark, or one of those, you know, British things where they had these big get-togethers and these gatherings together. Just think that, all right, and, and you'll get this better. Um. They would have these parties, and so they would, there would be a big to-do about this. And so you'd have a family, you know, let's just say the Smith family, and the Smith family would, would plan this big event, and they would want, of course, they would want the best food, they would want the best wine, and they would want the best entertainment, the three basic, you know, elements of any party that we would ever have. And so they would want these, all of this, and they would want it to be the best, and then they would want to invite a lot of people because, you know, if they invited a lot of people... They could get a lot of people to come, and it would be uh, more exposure for their family. Um, it would be well talked about in society. Oh, did you go to the party at the Smith's house? It was just off the charts amazing. And so then the Smith family would then become the talk of the town, and then they would be the envy of everybody's eye, and then the next time the Smiths had a party, it was like all-out war to make sure that you got an invitation. And so there was this pressure for these families to have the most amazing party together, period. Uh, Or to throw the most, uh, the greatest party. On the other side of the coin, so to speak, you had just the everyday people who weren't throwing the party or, you know, maybe some more elite people, popular people, but you had the people that had to come. And so the people that had to come were just, they were just so excited, you know, like, or that they, wa- they wanted because they would be so excited, like, man, I hope I get an invitation. And then they would, they would wait, and then, you know, they would get that invitation. They would hear word that they were able, their family was able to come to the party, and then they would come, and then they did not want to be 
you know, like the party poopers. Nobody wanted to be that, right? I mean, everybody wanted to enjoy, I mean, because it was going to be really good food, so just enjoy it. Everybody, it might have been the best wine that they've had in months. So they would just, you know, just enjoy it and enjoy a lot of it. And then there was entertainment. And so you can see just how, to, how kind of both of these things, both those people that were throwing the party and those that wanted to come together to this party, you could see how it was just really, it was like dynamite ready to, it was just ready to explode. And that's exactly what happened. And so last week we looked at the text where eventually what had happened at these these parties that in the Christian circles began as a good thing and as a, and as a wonderful thing, you know, eventually evolved and this cultural, the cultural values that they witnessed and they saw in the, in the world's parties, it started to creep into the Christian community. And so by the, t- by the time how they evolved, eventually we get to chapter six, right, where we, we read last week and the entertainment became intimacy fulfilled outside of the marriage covenant. Specifically calling it what it is, they would just seek for ladies to come and for there to be sexual gratification outside of the marriage bond through prostitution, prostitutes. And that's what it had come to with, church, with people in this Corinthian church. And again, I hope that you remember this, that sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and it costs you more than you want to pay. You'll n- nobody ever, when they get to that spot, nobody ever said, oh yeah, I knew I would get here. Nobody thinks they will because sin is so deceptive. And that's what happened to this church. And so they had come to this feeling, this belief that, look, hey, since the body just has this appetite for intimacy, it's just like food just feed it. Because in the end, it really doesn't matter. God's going to burn it all up anyway, and we're going to go, we're going to have, you know, these different bodies or whatever. And so, as one person put it, these folks just indulged. And as is with many things, when you're in this situation and in this environment, and you're around other people that are just doing it, that are just like, hey, you, you, hey, everybody's doing it. You fall prey to that. And if you're gorging your body with food and wine and all of that, then it just becomes this feeding frenzy and why not just feed the body? And one commentator said, a degree of decadence associated not only with the pleasures of the palate, but also of the pillow became the norm for the Corinthian church. To which, as we read last week, King Jesus tells us in verse 13 of chapter 6, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And he closes it in verse 20. He says, you are bought with a price, so therefore glorify God even with your body. Meaning, not only your stomach appetite, but your body's craving for intimacy. And so, Paul didn't disagree with them and say, there's not an appetite. I mean, there's, there is a God-given designed appetite, sexual appetite. But there's a right way and there's a wrong way to satisfy that appetite. There's a right way and a wrong way to use your body. Bodies, our bodies were, 
you know, it's not just the soul that God was after. It's also with our bodies that we were redeemed through the blood of Jesus. And those bodies should be meant for his glory. And that's where we left off last week. Second, the second group of people in the church were this group of people who witnessed all of this decadence that was going on. You could just imagine if you put yourself back there, you, you were there and you at first saw how, yeah, these parties were wonderful. It was a great opportunity for them to get together, even in the name of the Lord. But as cultural values creeped in and the appetites were strong and this just was a feeding frenzy again for many different things, you could see how it then it, then it evolved into this, devolved into this decadence. And within the church, there were these people, obviously there were these people, and you'll see that here in just a minute, who, who observed it and said, this is just not right. And rightly so. They saw their brothers and their sisters in Christ had given themselves over to this sexual immorality, to this sin, and, and, and they, were, they were just appalled by it. And rightly so. But as is the case often with humanity, we overreact. And so that's why you have the image on the screen. Oftentimes in not just this issue, but in many issues of life, we overreact as humans. We, we swing to both extremes. If it's not this extreme, we overreact, not all the time. And I'm not saying that the middle is always right. I'm just saying it help, this helps us to see we overreact often. There was this group in the church that said, hey, look, the body has a sexual appetite, so just feed it, just like you do food, because it really doesn't matter what you do with your body. To which God says, no, your body does matter. Use it for my glory. You have these people who saw that sin that was going, and so they overreacted, and this is what they, became, they came to believe. And we find that in chapter 7 and verse number 1. So if you'll read that with me, it says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, if you're remembering or recalling an older uh, translation, the older translation that I grew up in that I memorized when, when I was younger was, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. That word touch is a euphemism for intimacy. So essentially... What you read here in the, in the English Standard Version is, it is good. They came to believe, there was a group of people that came to believe, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so, the response of those that, right, again, they rightly saw the sin, but their response was to overreact into a position that is called asceticism. So number two... We see, and I'm sorry that that crowded together. It didn't do that on my computer, but it is what it is. All right, number two is asceticism. You're like, what in the world does that mean? Well, first of all, it starts with an A, which is great. But here's what asceticism is. The dictionary says, it is a belief that a person can attain a high spiritual and moral state by practicing self-denial, self-mortification, and the like. I like how Tim Keller puts this passage. He says, essentially, there was the first group was that sex is an appetite, so just feed it. But the second group says, 
Sex is bad. Intimacy is bad. So you can see there was this one group that just said, hey, do whatever your body wants. Just feed it. Just feed the craving. And this other group that saw the sin, and rightfully so, but they overreacted and they said, you know what? Don't even, have, don't, don't even partake of intimacy because it will just lead to sin. What Paul here is doing is he's quoting in verse number one. I believe he's quoting this little jingle that had started floating about in this church. Really, the only time you would say, well, how in the world could they believe that? I mean, what about kids and all that? Essentially, the ascetic ascetic folks, essentially the only time, they, they didn't believe that it was always wrong to be intimate. They believed that it was solely for the purpose of procreation, having children. And so when you wanted to have a child, then you were able to engage. But, and then maybe if you had to, uh, as verse number two, if you look down, the first part of verse two says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality. This, at first glance, it seems like he's saying the reason for intimacy is nothing more than the pragmatic way to handle uh, the intimate appetite and stay out of trouble. It makes really intimacy nothing more than really a calloused expression, just a duty. And we know that's not the intent, because Paul explains that in verses 3 through verse 5. And so what I think he's doing here in verse number 2 is he just is continuing conveying this popular thinking that they have, this overreaction. And so you have these people, it's, only, it's an appetite, feed it whenever you want. These other people, nope, only for when you want to have children. And you can see how they swung to both extremes. We know that that's not God's plan. And that's not what Paul intended. Those verses, look at verse 3 through verse 5 with me. Verse 3 says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. That doesn't sound like asceticism, does it? Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. These verses teach us that asceticism isn't God's plan either. God specifically says in verse 3 that each one should give to his wife, or that the wife should give to her husband. Then the language in verse 4 and 5 says that you don't even have rights over your own body. That does not sound like asceticism. God essentially affirms here to this church and to us the opposite view of the ascetic view. And what Paul is doing here in this text is he has taken chapter 6 and verse 13, that popular jingle, and chapter 7 and verse, uh, verse 1, that popular jingle, both extreme reactions, and he's, debunk- he's debunked both of them and said, that's not God's intent. That's not what God's plan is. There is, number three, an appropriate view. There is God's design. There is God's plan, a way that God wants the intimate relationship within marriage to function. We, he reminds them, and we need to be reminded that intimacy is not a bad thing. It's God's idea. When God created humanity, he created both man and woman, and they were both created in in God's image, but they were created differently. 
They were created to complement each other. And part of the design of the difference was so that they could, Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply. Part of the difference was so Genesis 2, that uh, he would instruct couples to hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. God's design for intimacy to be with, was to be with one man and one woman in a covenant relationship. Not just fulfill your appetite whenever you have it, with whomever you want it and wherever you want to fulfill it. It was not God's intent ever. Three times in this pericope, we are told that sexual immorality was going on, that his intimacy was happening outside of the marriage covenant. But God's design is found in chapter 7 and verse 2 here. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. It is wrong, always wrong, for either to go outside of God's intended design for intimacy, period. So on the one hand, since God created humanity to, have a, to, to be one flesh, obviously he created them with an appetite for intimacy, but it was to be fulfilled only within the marriage covenant, not outside of it. That was God's appropriate plan. Again, in verses 3 through verse 5, we read there that there's a difference between the intimacy is dirty or bad, folks, too. God's design was for regular communion, not just a co- in a co- there was a covenant. God's design, the appropriate relationship is in a covenant relationship and for there to be regular communion between the couple. As I mentioned last week, part of the problem with giving oneself to, to someone in a non-covenant marriage relationship is that intimacy involves the whole of the person. Some people think that ah, it's just merely a physical act. It's not. God didn't design the human that way. Chapter, that's why we read in chapter 6, Flee from sexual immorality. Every sin a person commits, other sin that a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. When we read that, we think, well, wait a minute. What do you mean it's the only sin against his own body? But God's not, obviously is not saying that sexual sin is the only sin against the body, right? Addiction is a thing I mentioned last week. But what God is saying here is that sin has a unique character. Intimacy involves the whole of the person. When God instructs one woman and one man, that's the covenant part, the appropriate part, to be one flesh, it's not just a physical union, but it's a communion of the whole person. It's the giving of the entire self, not just the physical, to another person. In some way, intimacy is giving of oneself emotionally, physically, spiritually, psychologically, men, all of these different aspects. It's a complete giving of yourself to another person. It is a complete, in every area of life, not just physical, it's a complete giving or nakedness of yourself to the other person. It's a pleasure that's supposed to be experienced of the entire self. And so therefore, intimacy is not a bad thing. Rather, it's a healthy and satisfying thing on many more levels than just the physical. Many more levels. So, God's plan is that, in, that intimacy is not a bad thing. You see how God's plan is the opposite of both extremes? The opposite of, oh, just feed it however, whenever, with whomever you want, or don't ever partake of it because it's just bad. 
That's not God's plan. God's plan was regular communion of the whole person within the covenant of marriage. Now, just to make sure that no one misunderstands God's view on intimacy, notice, and this wasn't part of our reading, we'll de- I'll develop more this more next week, but look at chapter 7, look at verse 7 with me. It says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own, what's the next word? Gift. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Again, as I said, I'll develop this more next week in, chapter, in verses 6 through verse 7. But notice with me that the covenant and the communion of intimacy within marriage is what Paul calls a gift. Paul is contrasting the gift some have in marriage and the gift that some have in singleness. God has given marriage, and in context, intimacy because that's what we're dealing with in chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. He's given that as a gift within marriage. You see, God's design was for intimacy to be a gift to us. So the gift isn't bad if it's expressed the way God intended it for it to be expressed. You have an appetite. You can be satisfied, but only the way God intended. So it's not bad. Which leads me this morning to the last thing that I... And this is number four. This is simply applications. Number four, applications. Church, can you see what's going on at this, within this local body of believers here in Corinth? Don't you see God's grace to us and allowing us to see what is possible when we give in to cultural values? When we love and think that the culture is smarter better off, more intelligent, right, more than God and his plan. This church at Corinth is a wonderful thing for us to see what happens when we find our ultimate value in things outside of Jesus. When we think we know better than God and do our own thing outside of his wisdom and design. Because sin takes you farther than you want to go. It keeps you longer than you want to stay and it costs you more than you want to pay. This church was having parties full of sexual immorality. And then there was the overaction that just said, well, you know what? Don't even have anything to do with intimacy at all. Don't you see what they have done? Don't you see what continues to happen in this church? Do you remember the very first thing that we dealt with? They, 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 I like the way Tim Keller puts it. He calls it these counterfeit gods that we deal with in our life. And the very first counterfeit god that they dealt with was the, god of, the, the, the counterfeit god of celebrity. They tried, where, they, they tried the avenue where they thought that life would be better, where, where they would be happier if they followed. Remember, I'm of Apollos, and I'm of, and I'm of Cephas, of Peter, and I'm of this person, and I'm of that person. And then there was a real spiritual crowd that said, ha, ha, well, I've got you all be, I'm of Jesus. And so they thought, look, hey, look, we, we see how it's working in our culture, and we see how, like, yeah, this group, they say they're really happy, and this is where they're finding it, and this is where they're connecting in life. And so the church said, you know what? Man, they, they must have the answer because look at these people. These people saying they're fulfilled, like on their, whatever, their, their papyri.com Facebook pages, right? They're, they're, they're like saying, look, we're, this is it. This is where Paul is where it's at. Peter's where it's at. He knows how. Come to my side. Come to my team. 
And so they tried this counterfeit God of celebrity. And they thought they knew what was better, but what happened? There wasn't love between them as a church. There wasn't unity between them as a church. There was actually schisms, literally tears within the church because, oh, look, this way, this platform, this group of people is better than this. And this is where it's at. You know, friends, that's always going to happen when we think we know better than God. And the issue is their pride. Here we learn of two more counterfeit gods. There's the counterfeit God of marriage. God created many people, not all. Listen to me very carefully. God created many people, but not everyone, to experience what we call, affectionately call, a soulmate. That is, a person, as Genesis describes, as one who is our completer or our helper in life. If God has designed a completer for you, a helper in life, he intends for you to enjoy that gift of marriage that he's given to you. It is a gift that affects the whole of your person, by the way, right? Emotionally, physically, mentally, socially, every aspect of your life. So therefore, it should bring joy. God's design and and intent is to bring joy in the whole of the person. But let me caution you. If you are married or you desire to be married, if you ever make your spouse your end-all, your be-all, that is, if you essentially make your spouse to function as God in your life, you will never be happy in that relationship. Never. It can't happen. Everyone, all of us, have expectations or ideals, and when you take two selfish people, even born-again people, but they're still selfish, and when you take two selfish sinners like that and you put them together, guess what's going to happen? There might be physical fireworks, physical joys, but there's also going to be the bad fireworks too. Why? Because there are unmet expectations, there's disappointment, there's differences of opinion, there's different values, and if your spouse is in the place that only God should occupy, you know what it's going to end up in? Nothing more than bitter disillusionment. Because your spouse, if you think your spouse is going to be the ultimate answer and satisfaction and value in your life, you're going to end up resenting them. You're going to end up in some cases. I remember one time, this was like 20 years ago. There was a lady that was struggling in her marriage. And I'll never forget this. She said, I can't even stand to look and touch my husband anymore. And the reason why is because she essentially made him to function as God in her life. And she was met month after month, year after year, with unmet expectations because he could never take the place of God. And she wanted him, functionally wanted him to be God for her. She thought that's where all her ultimate joy and satisfaction in life would be. And my friend, if, you, if you're married or if you desire to be married and you think that your spouse is going to be the end-all, be-all, you're going to be sorely disappointed because they're going to fail you. If my wife, and I've told her this and I've said this before, if she ever thinks of me or ever, I ever function as God for her in her life, she is going to have a miserable relationship because I'll never measure up, because I'm not God. 
Only God can be God in our life. We should enjoy the gift that is marriage. We should enjoy it within the covenant, and we should commune often. But we need to remember it's a gift from the greatest gift, who is Jesus. These gifts in life, do you remember our study in Ecclesiastes? God gives us all sorts of stuff to enjoy. Steak. Man, enjoy a big, oh man, just, now I'm hungry. Big, fat, juicy, medium, rare, ribeye. Oh, enjoy it. Or if tofu is your thing, enjoy it. Or liquid spinach or whatever it is you like. Enjoy those things. They're gifts. But those gifts should be enjoyed because ultimately we know there's a better giver. There's a giver of those gifts and a better gift that's coming, and that's Jesus himself. Jesus is the only one that can completely satisfy. He's the only one that can fulfill, ultimately fulfill. He is the only one that will never let us down. So don't ever let marriage be a counterfeit God in your life because it will be a horrible God. But secondly, there's the counterfeit God of intimacy. When we read of a church like we, have, we, uh, we do here in Corinth, it's pretty easy for us, isn't it? I mean, we read this text in ch- chapter 6, and well, even before chapter 6, we read of this, and we know we're not perfect, but we're not guilty of what we read here. I mean, it's not a, I mean we're not having a, a church family meeting saying, hey, look, we have a, a man in the church who's sleeping with the wife of his, uh, the former wife of his father. Remember we, we talked about that earlier? You know, we would say, well, we would never do that, you know, or we would never, it's not an issue for us. We, we don't seek intimacy outside somebody who's our own spouse. We look at a text like this and we said, yeah, but we're, we're not perfect, but we're not that. Friends, that's not really our problem today. I know that. Our problem today is not that we have gone outside of the walls of our home to engage in sexual immorality. That's not our problem. Our problem today is that we have brought it into the privacy of our homes. Many people have a mistress on their phone or on their computer. And my friend, if that's you here today, and men, I'm talking specifically to us, if that is you, it can do nothing but kill your marriage. It can do nothing but kill you spiritually. And we must repent of the sin. It is a fake. It's fake to, for God's design. It's a fake for God's design. And it can only lead to dissatisfaction with our spouse. More unmet expectations, more disillusionment, and just plain emptiness. Because it's not real. Intimacy outside of the covenant of marriage strips away the fulfillment God intended. Not just with the body, but with the emotions and the psyche. It's so empty. You never can be filled emotionally. Never can be filled, fulfilled mentally. It'll take you farther than you want to go. It'll cost you more than you want to pay. And in the end, it just leaves you. The sin, Bible, Bible agrees with this. Hebrews, right? It is pleasure, sin is pleasurable for only for a season because when it's done with you, when it's had its way with you, it just leaves you to rot and to die. We think this is love. 
We think that we're going to find satisfaction through the mistress that is our phone or our computer screen, but we can never find satisfaction there because that's not how God designed it. And that's not just a male thing either. There are countless ladies that read Christian romance novels that leave no room for the imagination. No man can ever measure up to that fictional character of perfection in those novels, never. And you know what that does? Just more disillusionment, just more dissatisfaction. And you would say, well, I can't believe this is a problem in the Christian church. Brothers and sisters, if this is you, you need to repent. You need to repent of disobeying. You need to repent of perverting God's design for intimacy because you thought you had to have it at any cost and you go to any length to have it and so you've gone outside of the will of God. It is only a counterfeit God. It can never accomplish what you think it will. Can I encourage you this morning to seek out accountability? Not just with this, but, you know, this is the topic, and I'm really burdened for this. You've heard me say this before publicly. This is something I struggled with, pornography, starting at the age of 14. One of the greatest ways God's graces in my life was accountability to a man named Stephen. I just opened up to him one time, and I just said, hey, this is what's going on. And, and from that day to this day, there is still accountability in my life. As a matter of fact, just two weeks ago, I think, Doc, two weeks ago we were at Crimson Cup. Doc is one of my, account, my brother Ryan's another accountability partner, where they're going to ask me about, hey, what are your eyes seeing? Where is your heart wandering? We need accountability. Men, you need accountability. Ladies, you need accountability or it's going to kill you spiritually. It'll kill your relationships. And if you're not married yet and you want to be and you're given to this, don't get married because that marriage will never, ever measure up to the mistress that you have. So not just this sexual immorality, but anything. I just encourage you. If you don't want it to creep into your life, be accountable. If it's creeped into your life, get accountable. You need help. And you know what? God can help you and see you through. And to have victory. To see you walk in the Spirit. It's God's plan. James chapter 5 and verse 16 says, Therefore, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Galatians chapter 6, verse three, first three verses say, Brothers, if one of you is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. You know, brothers and sisters, we have to get past this idea, past this culture, where we don't believe these verses. 
We have to get past this idea where where we read, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, where it's not just something that's written on a page, but where we live it. We have to get past this idea where, oh, I'm not spiritual enough to restore somebody else. You know what? None of us is super spiritual. We're all humans. We all struggle. But man, God's plan and God's design is for us to be accountable to each other. We got to get past this idea where we don't build one another up. Where we live individualistic lives. We have to believe that God knows what he's doing and what is best. The church thought the same thing that we struggle with. The beginning of chapter 7, remember it says, the things which you wrote. Meaning, the first things that were addressed in the, in the first six chapters, they kept quiet. They didn't ask out, out loud about those. They didn't seek help for those. Why? Embarrassment? Didn't think it was a problem? Didn't see the need for accountability? Now, there were some things that they could talk, write about and talk about. There was the super spiritual group that said, we'll just avoid intimacy altogether. Friends, you can't live this life on your own. It's a war. Like we sang about one of the songs this morning. It's a war. Listen, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8. We are all sinners. We're all guilty. We are in a country club. We're a hospital where we can get help with each other. It's not comfortable to admit your sin, but it's healthy and right in God's design. I don't enjoy it when I look at Doc and Doc says, well, you know what? Or when my brother Ryan said, and I vent to my brother and I'll say, oh, can you believe blah, 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 blah. And he says, well, actually they're right. What did you say to me? But we need it. And you know what? When I talk to, when I talk to Doc or, or Ryan or Lucas or Mike or Matt or one of my accountability partners or Stephen, when I talk to them, I'm not, yeah, I'm embarrassed if I have to say, you know what, I messed up. I wasn't really kind to my wife. I really stunk this week at being a dad. I was angry with so-and-so. I didn't use my time wisely. I didn't share the gospel with Nick, my neighbor, or his mom, Mary. I I just didn't when I had an opportunity. That's not comfortable. But I'm not afraid of them. I'm not afraid they're going to condemn me because Jesus already paid for all of that. They're not better than me. They struggle with things. It might look differently. we got to get past this culture where accountability is not the norm for us, Brian. We need to be willing to talk. And I'm not saying that we get you know, on Zoom and have 50 people on there and say, hey, look, I'm struggling with bank robbery addiction. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying, look, there should be somebody in the body of Christ and if you call this your, your family, there should be somebody here where you say, look, I'm struggling with this and I need help. If you're not doing that, that's, that's not God's design for your life. Ask help. Seek for somebody to pray with you. Seek for somebody to be accountable. Oh, it's just not my personality. That's your problem. God designed you to be accountable, just like the extrovert. 
You need help. You can't do life alone. It's a war. So this morning, I want us to make sure that we have take a step back. We look at God's intent for marriage. It's to be within a covenant. We're not to have a mistress outside of the covenant of marriage. Not before we're married or after we're married. We are to fulfill the appetite that God has given us, but within that covenant. We're not to abstain. Matter of fact, it's quite the opposite that we read about in verses 3 through verse 5. God's design is within marriage for there to be communion and for communion to be often of the whole person. And if you're struggling with that, if you're having issues, let's talk. Let's talk. Talk with somebody you trust and love. It doesn't have to be me. It doesn't have to be necessarily one of the other four pastors here. Talk to somebody you love and trust. That can help you. We, live, we have a war going on. But we need each other. And may we not give ourselves to the counterfeit, make these things counterfeit gods in our lives. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this text today. And